0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner.
1: I am delighted, and just to get ahead of this, because I've been looking forward to this moment for a long time, I get to say Lisa Dyson's here. That's right. So uh, here I go. I'm going to say a word, but then we're going to watch a video and get into this. Let me just tell uh, our audiences around the world about Lisa for a second. Dr. Lisa Dyson is a founder and CEO of Air Protein, which won the World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer Company. Um, That is a huge honor. Uh, As you're going to see in the video here in a moment, or maybe you read before uh, coming today, it is uh, reinventing how food is produced. So this is going to be really cool to get to talk to her about it. Um, so let, let's, let me tell you a little bit more about her, though. She's also the founder and chair of Coverti, a biotechnology company working with corporations that make the circular economy a reality. We'll end up chatting about that, I hope. And uh, let's talk about her background, though. She has a Ph.D. on such an easy subject, theoretical physics, <laughs> string theory. I'm sure you just read this for fun. Uh, how many people are majoring in physics in here? All right, there you go. This is, this, well, I, I honor you and I salute her as well because it was my most difficult subject when I was a student at Berkeley uh, many, many years ago. So she got a PhD in that from MIT. She was a Fulbright Scholar at the University of London and where she received an MS in physics. And before that, uh, we always like to celebrate even people's undergraduate uh, education because that's like many of you in the room. She has degrees in mathematics and physics from Brandeis University. But this is not her first time at Stanford uh, in official capacity. You were here as a scholar in Leonard Susskind's uh, physics lab uh, a few years ago as well, as, as well as our, my old alma mater, uh, Berkeley. So it's really cool to welcome you back to campus. And I just listened to some of these accolades. Ma- uh, Inc. Magazine's Top 100 Female Founders, uh, United Nations Global Citizens Award, Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People. Yeah, there was a good reason why we were clapping <laughs> when uh, to welcome her and thank you for that. So Lisa, welcome my friend.
2: So wonderful to be here.
1: Thank yeah. you, thanks for having me. It w- Well, it was terrific to have uh, one of our Mayfield fellows last summer, Jessica, Jessica, who's here, uh, intern at Air Protein. And that's when I first became familiar with the company when we did our site visit with her. But we're gonna try the impossible here. We're gonna play a little video here that it's just two minutes long, but I think it will give you a real jolt.
0: For some, the sky's the limit. For us, it's a starting point. Because below the clouds, there's a world crying out for change. A change to using less land, less water, to transforming industries that have become leading causes of climate change. At AIR Protein, we focused on meat. But to fix it, we couldn't just fix the process. We had to create an entirely new one. So we made meat from AIR. Introducing MetaMeat, a new food category pioneered by air protein. Using novel technology inspired by NASA, we convert elements in the air around us into protein using cultures, then turn those proteins into any meat imaginable. It's where cutting-edge science meets bold ambition to reinvent the way we eat. Because we're not in the business of baby steps, we're here to take leaps. Leaps that let us transform the future of sustainable food with solutions we never thought possible. Leaps that deliver us to a world where meat is delicious and nutritious, and making it is carbon negative, massively scalable, and uses exponentially less land and water used today. And leaps that reimagine our relationship with the environment to ensure that it's something worth passing on to those who come after us. And if you join us on this relentless pursuit for more, Changing the world will soon feel as natural as taking a breath.
1: I mean, it doesn't get much more purposeful or big and bold than that. Uh, So, it's so cool we get to have a chance to chat with you. We've prepared some questions for her. And we'll do that for a little while. And after that, it will open it up to everybody else in the room for the rest of the time. Fair enough? The usual style here? Okay, so let's, I've, we, we put together about three categories of questions. So the first one, let's just jump right off of that. What makes this technology d- distinct? And, and, and why are you so motivated to bring this to, the, to, to fruition?
2: So, uh, again, it's so wonderful to be back here at Stanford and it's so wonderful to be here with you all today. Uh, and so, just to start with, with the why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll talk about food in a way that we probably don't hear people talking about a lot. And I'll say that the technology that we use right now to make a steak can take up to two years. And it has the greenhouse gas footprint of a car. And that technology, as I'm calling it, of course, is a cow. Uh, And so it's hugely inefficient. Um, It's the same way that my grandparents made food. uh, And that might sound fine, but when my grandparents were kids, there was 1.6 billion people on the planet. Now there's about 8 billion people on the planet. And by 2050, there's going to be about 10 billion. Mm -hmm. And so right now, the food industry is one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters. And it contributes to massive amounts of deforestation. So there's a lot of issues. As we get more people, where are we going to get more land from to grow? and you know, for, for cattle grazing, to grow crops, to feed the cows, uh, and all the other forms of meat as well. And how are we gonna do this without breaking the planet? So that's really the why, uh, why we're focused on protein, because protein is a critical part of our diets. We're gonna need to increase protein content or protein production for more people on the planet. Um, so at Air Protein, we focus on doing it in a way that from cradle to gate is carbon negative uh, and that doesn't require any arable land, No agricultural inputs whatsoever. Uh, and if you allow me to go back to another invention that we're kind of following yeah. as well, is, you know, um, back in, um, in, in 1898, um, the, the newly inaugurated president of the Royal Academy for the Association of the Advancements of Sciences, um, gave a talk about why, um, you know, the, the 19th century uh, farmer was struggling and it was because there wasn't um, a lot of natural sources of fertilizer. And so he issued a charge for innovators, for scientists during his inaugural uh, talk to create innovations to actually pull nitrogen out of the air to make nitrogen fertilizer. Oh. And that of course happened, and it's it's so impactful, it's estimated that 50% of human tissue has uh, nitrogen from this process that was created. The Haber-Bosch process ultimately was created to solve that problem, and Haber won a Nobel prize for that. And so. That was to pull nitrogen out of the air so that we can grow crops and do that more quickly. Mm -hmm. And now we have this huge issue where we're running out of land and um, you know, with this population explosion, as it were, we're running out of land and we have all these greenhouse gas emissions, so why not just pull food out of the air directly? Wow.
1: Well, I'm thinking about this room. We've had in previous ETLs, in previous years, the founder, and I just was having a deja vu of uh, Beyond Meat, and we had the founder of uh, Impossible Foods in this series. How, how do you how do you position uh, what's going on with their protein with them?
2: Yeah, we stand on the shoulders of giants. A lot of innovators have come before us, and we're excited about the transition that we believe. Is happening and will happen um, to create things that are more sustainable for all, all of our, our future generations. And so what's different about us is that we're innovating kind of at the core. We're innovating at the at the ingredient level. Um, so we're creating proteins from a new source um, made from cultures, natural cultures. Think of uh, yogurt and cheese. These are also made from cultures. The fermentation industry is an industry that's been around ever since we realized that beer tastes good. Uh, and so our process is a type of fermentation, a new type of fermentation is called air fermentation because we use You know, you need need oxygen, you need um, carbon dioxide, Um, you need a nitrogen source. We use fixed nitrogen, and then you add energy and water essentially, and you end up being able to to create with these cultures the nutrients that we need for a balanced diet.
1: Well, we could spend the entire time talking about the technology because we're here at the School of Engineering, of course. Uh, But uh, I'm I'm interested about the relationship with Coverti, which is you started that with. a fellow named John Reed, right, right. at MIT, right. back, uh, what, 14 years ago, something like that? So what's Coverti have to do with Air Protein, just in terms of the journey?
2: Air Protein is a spin-out of Coverti. Ah. Um, and so we're leveraging, you know, first of all, we're leveraging work done by NASA during the space program back mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s where they were thinking about how do you, um, make food for astronauts on long space journeys, and you have to figure out how to do it in a way that's super efficient, that's fast, yeah. uh, and uses minimal space. And then Kiverti has leveraged that to build a suite of technologies, and Air Protein is the the pro, you know protein version of that. And so we've spun out of Coverty to build this company. Yeah,
1: I was reading; Kiverti originally was thinking about jet fuel, right? That's right. And then you and your journey <laughs> has led you to to this. Um, how did that happen?
2: So um, we started in, I'll call it Cleantech version one. Yeah. Uh, and that was when there was a lot of excitement about creating biofuels. And we wanted to do it and in, in, you know, we wanted to figure out how we can um, be a part of the solution as well. Uh, and so the day that we, you know, we were in our garage phase initially, myself and Dr. John Reed and the, the people that were on the team at that time. And for us, that meant going to a, a lab that we rented from a couple that had an NIH grant that had some extra benches. And so yeah. we'd go there and we'd work on, can we um, you know, make jet fuel, in this case, from CO2? Uh, and happily, the day that you know we, we ultimately got some funding and the day that we created components of jet fuel was super exciting. Um, um, but the price of fuel dropped.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, it crashed, in fact. And so the, the excitement right. <laughs> about biofuels... Uh, pretty much crashed with it. Uh, and so, you know, we had to pivot at that point. We had to figure out what, what else can we do with, this, with these concepts, with yeah, this concepts. Yeah, I remember
1: that moment, because yes. I was involved in a company um, that was making biofuels out of grease, but in a really small refinery, one you could put in your parking lot, you know, and take your grease and then make your diesel and uh, use that with your fleet. But 2008 happened. Exactly. You know, 2009, so it was difficult. Um, So, we're here at Stanford where we're all celebrating the new school of sustainability. So I want to get to that because it's in our minds right now with it. uh, You know, new school doesn't come along very often, it 80 80 years, something (laughs) like that. And it must have felt gratifying to you because you've committed your life to this issue of climate and and sustainability. what do you have, uh, there's a lot of excitement here. There's an accelerator with 40 members in it, already 40 teams. What do you say to them? Because you've been at this game now for a while, post, to, we're not in 2009, we're in 2022. Um, what? Do you, what's your advice to them? Because you're you're sort of out the shoot, but now they're thinking, you know, how do they redefine processes and uh, rethink this the way we do almost anything on this planet in order to avoid you know, the, the t- catastrophe we're worried about.
2: Yeah, your ideas, your innovation is required. That's the main thing that I have to say, because, you know, again, we're going to be at 20, we're going to be at 10 billion people by 2050. Yeah. And, you know, the, the amount of plastic waste that's in the ocean, the size of a continent, you know, the amount of greenhouse gases we're emitting, forests that are being removed, water issues, topsoil issues. There's so many issues that are out there that needs great minds. Um, to come and solve them. So, so that's the main thing. And then figure out what role you want to play, essentially, in it. And to be an entrepreneur is, is not for the faint of heart. We happen to be in a moment where there is strong interest, for instance, in climate. Um, and by you know, companies are making net zero claims uh, and they're looking for solutions. So we happen to be in that moment. Grab that moment and like come up with solutions and work with those companies to mm-hmm. figure out how to solve some of these problems. Um, you know, there's with plastic, there's you know regulations that are, single-use plastics are being banned in many different uh, geographies, and so companies have to do something about that. And so grab that opportunity and come up with some solutions. Um, so that's what I'd say. We don't know how things are going to change over time, um, but you know, you can start a company, you can have an idea, you can join a company, you can join. Uh, Corporate America, you can join an NGO, there's a policy maker. There's so many different ways in which you can get involved.
1: The co-host, the regular host of this series, this quarter, and the leader of the course itself is a fellow named Ravi Balani. And he has a great way of talking about his his love of the word resilience. And I think if you're going to go into this space, you better be very resilient. So here you are. You could be, you could be, I could be talking to you right now as a professor here. I mean, as, you know, you had gone down the path of getting into a tenure track position in the physics department. I'm sure that was an option for you, you know, here or some other, you know, peer school. Um, but you've decided to be a founding CEO. I mean, yes, you were the entrepreneur of the other one, but now you, you've been at Air Protein since the get-go. And it's a, it's a, it's a different situation than being in the lab generating and creating knowledge i mean you now are responsible for a whole lot of uh, stuff so how's that been that this this becoming a founding ceo
2: so what I'll say, and by the way, Coverti still still doing its thing and kind of has developed a platform technology as a result of all the pivots it had to make early on. And, and do
1: you on. have a, any operating role there? Like, uh, just on the board. Just yeah. on the board, and yeah. Not the Steve board. Jobs doing Apple and...
2: Uh, I'm on the board. <laughs> or, yeah, the... Uh, so, you know, my dad actually was an entrepreneur. Yeah. And so I got to see... The highs and lows of entrepreneurship, growing up. Yeah. And what I loved is just he would have ideas, and just seeing him, you know, the wheels turning, and him bringing people together to, you know, bring those ideas to fruition. And um, I love that. You know, that's something for me. Like every, so I'm I'm very much, uh, you know, not averse to risk. I'm very much not averse to things not working. Um, you know, if I believe in something, you know, I'll work really hard to try to make it happen and, and, um, you know, really focus on that. So, uh, I think that was important for me to see his example. At some point he was president of a chain of, uh, 55 hair salons. So, you know, he had, he saw, he saw the ups and downs of his journey and I saw that with him. And so that was, that was kind of critical for me, I'd say.
1: Well, it's, it's fascinating. We don't normally meet people who could go really, really deep. In some scientific field and be a star there, which you undoubtedly would have been if you kept to that, to diving in and, and saying, okay, what does it mean to be a leader as a not a laboratory leader, but uh, you know, a leader of a company.
2: Yeah, well, I didn't intend on leading a company.
1: Uh, yeah. So when did it that happen? More, when did that little? Yeah. Uh, it
2: was more by necessity. Pivot, I would yeah. Call it that. was. It was like we we had a vision and we needed leadership, and so you know I I stepped in to do it. Um, but I am definitely the entrepreneur of the group. I am definitely the risk taker, you know, the one who you know, can kind of grab a vision and run with it, no matter what ch- challenges are in the way. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's, and, and so building a company, there's so many different things that, that as all of you, you know, have heard from others that you've talked to, probably some of your friends, but there's so many aspects of building a company. Um, but the important thing is the people that you surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. Getting getting a great group of people uh, and creating a culture actually that's that's um, going to be one that's going to persist through challenges, through pivots, um, innovative, creative, uh, and you know, where there's a lot of trust.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I met some of them when we visited uh, Jessica in her yes. internship and. You've raised a great deal of money uh, as a, a seed round or a, a Series A round from GV and other reputable firms. Uh, though I want to kind of get, in, we're just amongst friends here. It's Just you and me, and we just got about 200 friends here.
2: Okay. What,
1: what brings you joy in this job? We're always asking, like, what's your worst nightmare? But let's flip it today. Yeah. What brings you such joy to want to, to do this pace?
2: So I was at a... Um uh, a part of this, this group called Unreasonable Group, which is really phenomenal. Love it. Uh, and one of the mentors there, a founder, successful entrepreneur who sold his company and all that, came back to, to mentor those of us who are um, building companies. And after talking to him for a while, he said, Lisa, it seems like you have a burden on your shoulder that you have to inspire you know, your people. And he said, your people need to inspire you. And that little shift in thinking was so important for me because I began to to, to shift and like look at the amazing people we have on the yeah. team and all the amazing things that they're doing. And my people are the ones that is you know they're not my people, but the people that I'm privileged to get to work with yeah. are the ones that inspire me on a daily basis.
1: Wow, uh, can we go to third pasture or third dimension? We were chatting about at the team, and uh, I hope it's okay with you. And that is. Um, the notion of pivoting, scaling, I threw in there pivoting in, in your you know, role, but this is, this is pivoting in strategy. And we touched on it early on from jet fuel to, to here. When this, your job is to scale this thing. This is not a small business, I mean, anymore. It's, that's not the intention, especially when you took on venture capital. It's, uh, it is now but you were driven by more than that. You wanted to scale because you want to put a a dent uh, in the universe as you you talked about in this problem that's brewing. Um, So what, can you talk about a time when when a pivot was necessary in order to seek the scale that you wanted that uh, was particularly challenging?
2: I think it's that first one. It's that jet fuel one. Was it? That, was, that was probably, and, and there's been many since, but the benefit of that, the benefit of saying, okay, the market is no longer ripe for investing in a new innovation in this area. Mm-hmm. What else can we do with this technology? And then we started working on palm oil. Actually, when we were working on that, we were hitting you know, some good milestones. And in the midst of that project, working with a corporation, the price of palm oil dropped by two thirds. <laughs> so so we, we, sort of we pivoted happened. again. Yeah. Um, but in the process, we ended up building more of a platform. And we realized that there's so many different things that we can make with this technology. And, you know, Coverti works with corporations to help them kind of does R&D development projects. I What's see. the molecule that you want? What's the material that you want? Can we make it in a way that's carbon negative from cradle to gate? Can yeah. we make it in a way that doesn't require any arable land? So that's what Coverti does. And, you know, air protein, we, we split out air protein to focus on this food issue because it's its own thing. And we're building, you know, we have the B2B uh, opportunities, but we also have B2C, consumer brand. And that's a whole different skill set. I I was going to say,
1: what is your business model for protein? Yeah,
2: We want to tell consumers our story directly. We want to connect directly with consumers on, on, you know, this new way of producing the nutrients that they uh, enjoy. And so we're building both a a B2C brand as well as, um, you know, happily because there's this strong... Um, understanding that climate is an issue and and all these net zero um, promises that companies are making. They're looking for Companies that can help them with their scope three emissions, and that's essentially the emissions associated with um, materials in their supply chain. And we happen to be a, a company that can make ingredients and inputs in a way that lowers your scope three emissions. in fact, it's carbon negative from cradle to gate. Um, so that's a huge opportunity. We're, we're excited about this moment where there is an interest in that, and there's a focus, you know we're, we're devoted. We've devoted our lives to this, and we're happy now that corporations are are seeking that.
1: Well, as you can tell, I'm a fan, but every company has risk what's the white hot risk right now or the red hot you know that's burning a little bit that needs uh, needs attention in the in the coming year or two
2: yeah the main thing for us is scaling that's the main thing larger and larger facilities we're working on our first facility our first demonstration unit now as to come online very soon we're at the tail end of that process uh, and then it's just going to the next scale going to the next scale and so with each scale up there's Time, essentially, that it mm-hmm. takes to both scale up the facility and also to get it optimized at that, at that level. And so that's the huge thing. That and get the right
1: now. people who can scale. Absolutely. It, right. It's all about team.
2: It, it's all about people in the end. Execution. It, it have
1: that. Um, so I don't know if you told anybody that you were going to go to an ETL and meet somebody that <laughs> makes protein food out of air. Did you do that? Because when I told people what I was doing today, they just looked at me like, "Are you what?" You know, <laughs> th- yeah, she makes protein food out of air, so uh, it's uh, it's real, it's real. And w- so before we open up, um, I've got one more. We when we've been emphasizing uh, several themes in this s- seminar series. The seminar series has been around for twenty years. Up until about three four years ago, um, we talked about you know, finding product market fit. We found, we talked about how to raise money with minimizing dilution, all the kinds of uh, challenges and dilemmas that uh, CEOs like yourself face in your teams. Um, But we pivoted and we started emphasizing the discussions around ethical dilemmas and uh, how they manifest themselves. So is there a time uh, where your values were such that you had a, a big challenge to uh, solve a particular dilemma. A typical, you know, in any given week, you got a, several dilemmas in any given month period of the company. But is there one uh, where it was, you could share with us uh, because of our, we're, we're emphasizing that ethical dilemmas are gonna, gonna be there no matter what, is how you handle them. Is there one that comes to mind?
2: So what I'll say about that is, when we started Air Protein, we wanted to be really intentional about the culture that we wanted to create, and you know we, we got together and we hashed through what are the values that we want people that are in this company to have, the people that we hire, the people that we keep. Um, and one of the core values is protect people on the planet. That emerged from many conversations about what we value, and that that reveals itself in many ways. The, the planet side is pretty obvious. People join Air Protein because they're trying to have a positive impact on the planet. And then on the people side, um, you know, it's everything from our employees to our, our um, partners to our customers uh, and beyond. And, um, and how do you protect people on the planet? Like How do you do that? Uh, and one, one area that comes to mind is just safety. Um, creating a safe operating environment, creating psychological safety. And for us, it was important for us to define that as as a core value um, Mm -hmm. so that when we got people in the company, that's something that they ascribe to. And also, it's something that would be a a measure. We measure kind of our decisions against that. And and, and what I'll say there is... um, Building a safety culture in a in an operating you know, manufacturing environment is critical. is really important. And one thing that we've started saying is you know safety is priceless. Because one of the ways w- in which companies, if you look at some of these large companies that have had issues, um, some of it is around cost cuts, mm-hmm. like kind of making a choice be- based on you know profitability, based on you know what's the least cost, et cetera. We, of course, are for profit, so we focus on profit as well. But what's above that all, and all else is, is protecting our people, protecting people. So um, that's, that's kind of one important thing. What I'll comment there is, and it kind of links up to people inspiring me as well, is there's been a couple of instance, instances where uh, there's been a work team around us that haven't been implementing you know, practicing safety. Um, uh, processes and one, one project manager on our team, you know, went and reported that to their bosses and in our team meetings where we talk about safety as kind of, that's one of the core parts of the meeting. Yeah. Um, his comment was, you know, I had to say something because, you know, just as a human, you know, they're not on our team. We can't affect their work, but I can try to have an impact as a human and in that moment, he inspired me.
1: Wow. All right. That's fantastic. Well, I suggest we move on to questions.
0: All right. Hi, I'm Jay.
1: Um, So I'd assume that the average
2: consumer walking around in the grocery store probably doesn't care as much about the environment as someone like you or I do. So how do you convince them to buy an air protein product over like their normal burger or steak? Like is air protein, does it taste better? Is it cheaper? What's the main draw? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple answers. One is um, it, it has to be great. It has to taste great. Like there's no way to, one of the reasons why we're working on what we're working on is because we don't want there to be a compromise. We want, you know, I'll make choices based on the environment, but the person, you know, my husband loves me. <laughs> so he is my measure, you know, he has to like it in order for us to actually, um, we believe, be successful for people like him to like it. And so taste is, is number one. And then secondly, it's, it's about building a brand, building a brand that stands for something. You know, more and more consumers today want to buy from companies that stand for something. And they may not know the details, you're right, um, you know, but, you know, that's what we're going to do is build a brand and talk directly to consumers about what they're supporting as they support this brand.
1: Fantastic. Hi, I wanted to ask about the circular economy. The circular, oh, circular economy. economy. And what yes. that means.
2: Yeah, so it is, um, um, and I'll, I'll actually give the example of the NASA example of when you go to space in a spaceship, you uh, don't, there's no you know, food company, I won't name names here, but there's no food company along the way, no grocery store. So you have to make your food uh, there. And so you have to, and, and we're a carbon-based life form and we get our carbon through our food. So that is the same thing as saying recycling carbon, as an example. You have to figure out how to recycle carbon. On Earth, carbon is recycled via plants and trees, and so there's a, a, a circularity, as it were, just naturally, uh, in our ecology, in our ecosystems. Uh, and so circular economy is applying that to how we manufacture, how we make goods. Um, it's recycling plastic, for instance. It's you know, just how do we recycle and reuse. One, in nature, one organism's waste is another organism's fuel. That's what it is in, in nature. And So how do we do that more in uh, how we manufacture?
0: Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, My name is Christine, and I'm actually a physics major here, and I'm interested in both research and entrepreneurship. So I was going to ask them, how do you think having that background in theoretical physics, which is like highly technical, impacted your experience as a founder? And I'm also curious what that mindset transition was like from research, which is very conservative and cautious and detail-oriented, to the startup space, which favors a lot more boldness and risk-taking and kind of grand ideas.
1: That was so well done. That was what <laughs> I was trying to do earlier. How about next week you come up here? <laughs> that was perfect, that transition.
2: So for me, the, tra- the transition happened at the Boston Consulting Group, where you know, after getting my PhD, you know, I was thrust into a room with executives from a large um, uh, you know, company, helping them plan their international expansion strategy. And, and so what I realized is that the, you know, the scientific method can be applied to many things, almost anything. So you gather your data, you, um, do your re- you know, start with your hypothesis, of course, you do your research hypothesis, data analysis, you know, conclusion, and you keep the cycle going. And that was a really good moment for me to really experience how I can help these executives from these global organizations solve business problems that I had never studied. Um, and so that was a good transition. And the other thing was, was the whole 80-20 rule. That's definitely not what a physicist focuses on. You know, what 80/20 is getting 80% of the answer, doing uh, 20% of the work, Uh, and just diving deep and getting you know as as far as you can quickly, and then coming and you know forming your hypothesis or editing your hypothesis as a result of that. So I think that was BCG served as that great transition for me um, to uh, to get to what you're you're talking about and ultimately launching businesses. I
1: think we have somebody right here.
0: Hi, I'm Laura. I'm a freshman, Um, you had mentioned the Haber-Bosch process, and whilst it was an incredible invention, I know that there were lots of consequences like eutrophication, biodiversity loss, um, issues with the atmosphere. So I think my question was, um, with this being such a world-changing technology, um, are there any unintended consequences that you're either researching or taking into consideration, um, perhaps more specifically on the atmosphere, if this is really scaled up in the future?
2: Yeah,
1: that's a great question. That's another great question. Yeah,
0: you
2: know, just, lots of good well, questions. One I wish I had asked. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and it's important. I mean, what we're dealing with really is um, we're addressing what's happening because it's not because of Haber Bosch; it's because people kept um, popular, you know, kept having children. But <laughs> um, but the Haber Bosch enabled them to be fed, essentially, um, and so that's important. Again, this goes back to our core value as a company: protect people and the planet. And that's just something, that's why we made that a value, so that if, there's an, there, if there are unintended consequences, we're alerted to that early on. People in the team, they have the ability to raise their hand and they have the, the obligation to raise their hand and say, we need to think about doing this differently.
1: I want to introduce you to uh, two faculty members that are teaching a class, which I highly recommend to everybody, whether you're undergrad or grad. It's Engineering 148 for undergrads. Sign up for 248, Engineering 248 as a grad. It's Jack Fuchs and Scott Sandell. Um, you might know Scott Sandell's name because he runs New Enterprise Associates. He's a managing partner. But that's the whole course, is that. Yeah. The discussion of what's the difference between values and principles? How do you, how do you take your personal principles to uh, use in an, an organization, therefore the organization's uh, values and, and ethics? And then there's, of course, the Soho societal ethics type of thing. So there's all these layers that they go through this all in a case-based method, role-playing, and it's, it's been spectacularly successful the last four years. Yeah. And that's that's just the sea change for us in entrepreneurship education is to put that in now and that these kinds of these kinds of questions never came up 10 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. And maybe they should have, you know, when we had the, that generation of entrepreneurs coming through this series. Yeah, uh, it was, was just, it really is good to see.
2: Yep and just to pick up on that. So yeah. yeah, I mean and again that's that's within an organization, it's it's the 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 culture that you create. And you yeah. want to create a culture where integrity is an integral part of that culture. And then on the on the the question about this um process. So plants pull carbon out of the air as well. And this is a way of doing it faster. And the question that we're trying to ask, ask is how do we do what plants are doing and what um what animals are essentially doing through with plants as kind of the first step. Um, but how do we do it in a way where we don't have to clear all this land? How do we do it in this way, a way where we're not emitting more greenhouse gases? So, so we're actually just really trying to address problems with this.
1: Well, let's go out online to the Internet, find out what they would like to ask. Right. Mandy?
0: Question over here. We have about 100 students also tuning in on Zoom. So this is the most upvoted question. Curious to understand your production costs versus the standard meat production costs. How competitive is air protein meat when it comes to the average consumer choice at the point of sale? How do how do you scale the business <laughs> with such production limitations?
1: If there ah, is ah the unit meat? economics question.
0: Yes, that's an important one. gotcha.
1: Yes.
2: And it's one of the reasons why we're excited about air protein is because we did the techno-economic assessment. We did it with third parties, and we believe that at scale we will be lower cost than the alternatives. And so that's why we're excited about it. It's it's you know. And one of the, the process um, requires a few things and, and are following kind of these, these trends that we're seeing. And one of the trends is um, power generation becoming more and more renewable. We use a lot of power. That's kind mm-hmm. of a key input for us. And we focus on renewable power. And that's becoming more abundant and lower and, and lower costs. costs. Yeah. And that's important. So we're, as we scale and renewable power scales and becomes, becomes cheaper, our process also becomes cheaper. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we're, we're piggybacking off of.
1: All right good. Do we have another one in here?
0: Hi, um, my name is Ava. Um, and I was just wondering, um, generally for your uh, outlook on the potential
2: market for air protein, are you mostly interested in individual consumers in the country? Are you interested in maybe making broader changes in terms of like industries like the restaurant industry, or yeah. are you looking on like a global scale, maybe targeting areas of food where food is really scarce or food deserts within the country? Like how do you see kind of transitioning air protein maybe from just something that's sold in grocery stores to something that can solve larger issues in the world? Yeah, good question. And our vision is is really as big as what you you're um, summarizing there. We're starting in the U.S. That's where we are locally here. We're almost at we're at the tail end of our grass process, our independent grass certification, uh, and our facility coming online. So we're starting here. Um, But our vision is is much bigger than this, I mean, to the point about areas, this is a place, this is a technology where you can um, produce food locally, you can produce food uh, using minimal kind of inputs and resources, water, uh, energy, and elements of the air are key inputs that can allow you to produce nutrients, and so that can be deployed in places where there's food security. Uh, Issues today where there's you know supply chain disruptions today or tomorrow. Um, So that's important We want to scale a technology that can enable us to provide low-cost nutrition to anyone
1: How about another from zoom?
0: It seems that one of the challenges in food distribution is logistics How can air protein overcome that challenge and can it be produced locally?
2: Well, I answered that a little bit at first. And so I'll, I'll say that to build on that, so we can produce locally. Um, we don't need, uh, we don't rely on any agriculture. So right now, if you're, you're um, producing food, your inputs are coming from um, far away in many cases. And there may be uh, issues associated with, uh, you know, season, seasonality as well as, you know, with climate change, we're seeing more droughts, um, we're seeing um, the yield uh, be affected by all that. Um, so we don't have any of those constraints, any of those barriers. Uh, we can, um, our inputs are very simple, uh, essentially, and they can be sourced locally. So that part of the equation is, is uh, immensely simplified by this process. Uh, and then, you know, once we, you know, start creating products, we, we, we have to deal with any other challenges associated with getting food out to consumers. But the locality of this, the ability to, to make it local is a huge benefit.
1: Well, I think we covered everything our team wanted to hear, and these were really great questions. I would like to wrap up by asking you to imagine yourself 20 years old at Brandeis, sitting in a you know, room like this, listening to someone like you. Um, what do you hope that they heard from you today?
2: Okay. I think the most important thing is that change is required. Um, how, we, how we got into the mess we're in, um, you know, the, the processes and the systems that got us here will not get us out of it. So we need new ways of, of producing. We need new ways of doing things. And so we need innovators. We need innovators and inventions. And we need people to work on those inventions. We need people to support um, you know, sustainable alternatives. So I think the main message is the time is now. We need to change, and we need all of you to be a part of
1: that. Well, this was so fabulous. I'm going to, when we publish this later and you know, do some uh, editing and so on, and then we put it out to the world, um, I'm going to send it over to the new dean of the okay. uh, door school. I have his email. <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> and, wonderful. And urge him to have a look. I think Arun would really, really like it. Awesome. and, and, and it's, So it's not only... Uh, Thank you for being here on the behalf of the School of Engineering, and frankly, you know, the entire university, but specifically, what a perfect time, uh, given what's going on here. So everyone, how about once again, give it up for Lisa Dyson.
0: The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.